Now today, friends, we come to the 16th Psalm. And as we come to this great psalm that is here, it is a psalm of resurrection. We have here the resurrection of the Messiah. It's quoted in the New Testament three different places, and very clearly so. You have actually in this psalm the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, and even the ascension of Christ. And we're going to take that up as we get down in the psalm here. It is a great psalm and one that we ought to spend a great deal of time with. Now, you will notice, those of you that are following in the text and our notes, and I trust you have them, it's called a miktam of David. Now, this is the first miktam psalm. And somebody's going to say, well, what does that mean? Well, the word miktam actually is of uncertain origin. And we're going to come to some more psalms that are called Miktam Psalms. Psalm 56 through 60 actually is that. Now, Martin Luther translated Miktam a golden jewel. And I think its messianic meaning is fully established by the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. This was actually Peter's text, not Joel, but Peter's text was from this psalm, as we're going to see now in just a few moments. And we'll find that the apostle Paul, in what I think is one of the greatest sermons he ever preached, was in Antioch of Pisidia. He quoted from this psalm, and it's quoted in Hebrews 2.13, and again in reference to Christ. Now, that means that this is the third messianic psalm that we've seen. Psalm 2. We saw there the rejection of the king, but God's final purpose to put him on the throne. And that looks to his second coming. And then we have in Psalm 8, his humanity is presented there. That is the incarnation. And it's so quoted in the second chapter of Hebrews. And now we see him in this golden jewel. Let's call this psalm the golden jewel of David, because he's looking forward to the one that's coming in his line, the one of whom he could say, this is all my salvation. That is, when this one came. Now let's listen to the psalm. He says, "'Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust.'" This reveals, I think, the wonderful voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he said he's come to do the Father's will, committed himself to the Father completely. He took this place of subjection down here purposely when he took upon himself our humanity. He assumed it. Now, little man down here, and we're pretty little, by the way, all of us are, little man becomes proud and tries to lift himself up. And I'm afraid today that we have men in high places, politicians, if you want to call them statesmen, you may, and men in science, men in education, and ministers, they almost take the place of God today. But I want to tell you, friends, we're pretty small potatoes here on this earth. We don't amount to very much. We were created a little lower than the angels. 
Now, he came down here and took that place. He took it willingly. He didn't have to take it. I have to take it. I'm glad I'm a man, but I also need to recognize what man really is. And then I rejoice what God's going to do for us and with us someday. And he says, "'Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust.'" What a picture of the Lord Jesus. It was a picture of David. Oh, I trust it's a picture of you and me today. And I continue on in verse 2. "'O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee.'" Have you ever just ridden along in your car or walked on a mountainside, a walk by the seashore, and when you did that, why, you could just look up and say, you're my Lord, <laughs> the Creator, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, you're my Lord. Have you ever told him that, by the way? I've got a little grandson, and you can't imagine <laughs> what it means to an old man to have him crawl up in your lap and put his arms around you and tell you that you're my grandpa. <laughs> That's quite wonderful, my friend. And I have a heavenly father. And since he made us as he did in his image, I'm of the opinion that he likes for us and our Savior likes for us some time to come to him and tell him, you're my Lord. <laughs> and have you told him that, by the way? And don't tell him like the crowd that someday they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform mighty wonderful works in your name? He said, well, I didn't even know you. Oh, I want my friend, when I call him Lord, to mean it, that he is my Lord. Now let's move on. But to the saints who are in the earth and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. You see, he's the Lord to his saints down here that are in the earth. It doesn't extend to everybody, as he makes it clear here. Verse 4, "...their sorrows shall be multiplied, who hasten after another God." By the way, and of course you have to supply the word God. It's here in italics because it really means after another. There's only one God, but some go after another. And the word God's not here. It just means another they think is God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. What a picture this is. The pagan had those that he called his gods. And in David's day, it was Dagon and Baal. I get rather amused when I hear people say, I have no creed. That's what a man said to me. He said, I just don't believe in having a creed. I said, you don't? No, he said, I don't. Well, I said, that's your creed. He says, what do you mean? Well, I said, your creed is you don't believe in having a creed. You see, you can't help but have a creed. There used to be a church years ago in downtown Los Angeles. had painted on the side of it because it was in sort of a store building, and the whole side was exposed to the street, and they had this sign, No creed but Christ. Well, that was their creed. <laughs> they had a creed. They had a good one. But I think that that's oversimplification, and you don't really quite tell the truth. When you make a statement like that, you need to say, I think, a little bit more than that. Now, listen to him as he moves on in this psalm here. 
Verse 5, "...the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage." Now, this is a very wonderful thing. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. Here is the one that came down to this earth, and he took this place down here, and he's walking in a world of sin and sorrow, perfect stranger down here. And he rejoiced in Jehovah. There was peace and joy in his life. And he says, my portion and my cup. Well, what is the difference? Well, my portion is what belongs to me. That's mine. Whether or not I enjoy it, it's mine. And my cup is what I actually appropriate or make my own. You see it at the table. Do you mind if I refer to the little grandson? We put on his plate, that is his dish, what's his portion. He can have it. But very frankly, he scatters it around and doesn't eat all of it. He only appropriates so much. So he has a portion and he has a cup. The portion He never consumes all of that, just what is in the cup. Now, there's many a person that's in this world. God is blessed with all spiritual blessings, but he doesn't enjoy them. His cup doesn't run over, doesn't have much in it. God wants us to enjoy life, friends. He came that we might have life. We might have it more abundantly. He said he came that their joy might be full. Fullness of joy. Some of us have fun a little time, but we don't have it all the time. We need to have it all the time. This is a wonderful psalm. Listen now. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. What do you think about at night when you can't sleep? Well, this one thought of the Lord. Now, we come to that which is quoted in the New Testament. Will you note this? Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou permit thine Holy One to seek corruption." Now, this is the psalm of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen now to it. It is quoted first by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And I'm turning to the second chapter of the book of Acts. And this was the heart of Peter's message. Will you listen to it? For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, or in Sheol. And that was the Hebrew of it. It's Hades, as far as the New Testament is concerned. The unseen world can be the grave. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. Now listen to Simon Peter now. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. 
Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, listen to Simon Peter, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, his sepulchres with us unto this day. And where Simon Peter was speaking, apparently in the temple area, he could point it up to where David's tomb was. He said, David's buried up there. This doesn't refer to him. refers to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he'd raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now, there are several liberal expositors. Peroni is one of them that says that this has no reference to the resurrection of Christ. Well, all I can say to you is this. When a liberal makes that statement, I have to put down by the side of it what Simon Peter said on the day of Pentecost, and I just can't refrain from asking this question. Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost saw several thousand turn to Christ and were saved, brought a revolution in the Roman Empire. And I just feel like saying to these liberals, how many are coming to the Lord through your ministry? How many are you really touching for God today? That's the real test. I'm taking Simon Peter's word for it. This psalm refers to the resurrection of Christ, and he's not through. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this, which we now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said, Unto my Lord sit thou upon my right hand, till I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, this is quoted as referring to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this psalm again is quoted by Paul yonder in the 13th of Acts. He goes back, and for thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou permit thy Holy One to see corruption. So this is a psalm of the resurrection. And actually, what you have here is something I think quite remarkable. We have in verse 8, you have the life of Christ. Listen to this. I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. That, my friend, was the pathway he followed down here. It's the pathway I want to follow. Then you have in verse 9 the death of Christ. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh shall rest in hope. And he died there upon the cross. He knew that God would raise him from the dead. How's your feeling today about it? You know God's going to raise you from the dead. Then you have the resurrection of Christ. Verse 10, Thou shalt not leave my soul in Sheol, that is the grave, neither wilt thou permit thine Holy One to see corruption. Then you even have the ascension of Christ. Here, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, this is a glorious, as you can see, wonderful psalm 
here that speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious, wonderful psalm that it is. And it is so used in the New Testament. The resurrection of Christ is prophesied here. This is a great messianic psalm. Now we come to Psalm 17, and actually beginning with Psalm 16 and going through Psalm 24, we have another segment that belongs together. You know, in a song book today, they'll have songs of praise together, songs of repentance, Christmas songs, and all the different songs put together in certain sections of a song book. Well, that's what you have in this song book. Now we come to this section that ends with the 24th, and in each of these nine psalms, we find Christ in prophecy. And we also see that faithful remnant, as we've seen here in the 16th Psalm. And they're both, I think, blended together. And the greatest of this section will be the 22nd Psalm. And we have a book on that, an X-ray of the cross. We offer that to those who support this program. And we hope that you will be sure and write in. And we'll have to ask for a gift for the program so we can send the book, an X-ray of the cross. Now, what we have here in this psalm is a prayer of David. And the question has always been, when was it written? It was a prayer that apparently came out of the wilderness experience that he had. That was when Saul and his men were almost upon him, almost took him. And this psalm here reveals the same trust in God that we had in the last one. And in the final analysis, we've said these psalms speak primarily of the Lord Jesus Christ. They also speak of the experience of David. And it can also be a prayer for us today because many of us may find ourselves in a similar situation, that is, in a place of trial, anxiety, or of danger. Now, probably I should remind you again of a new series. These psalms come in series. And here we have, beginning with Psalm 16, that outstanding messianic psalm, and it goes all the way to the 24th psalm. And we find Christ in prophecy now. We find him in the Psalms. After all, it is a hymn book, and the hymn is spelt H-I-M. Now, will you notice as we get into the Psalm, and it's a very wonderful one, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feign lips. This is, I think, a prayer of David primarily, who is in grave danger. And this is a prayer that comes from a man's heart when he is in grave danger. And at this time, he's going to say what he's really thinking, and he's going to tell it like it is. There'll be no, shall I use the common colloquialism, there'll be no put on here, or as the word is here, feign lips. That is an insincerity, an hypocrisy. And be sure of one thing, David is expressing his own thoughts here. And he makes that very clear at the beginning. He says, "...let my sentence come forth from thy presence. 
let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. And that is, he's asking for justice from God, that the Lord will measure the thing rightly. And then in verse 3, thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tested me and shall find nothing. I purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. And the very interesting thing is that when he tested David, he did find something. And when he tested me, he found something. I have a notion that when he tested you, he found something. But this now speaks of our Lord. Thou shalt find nothing. I purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. And many of us wish we had a zipper on our lips at time and that we hadn't said such a thing at all. Here is the one that just didn't say something that was wrong. And they marvel at the words that our Lord Jesus gave. Now listen to him as he proceeds here in verse 4. Concerning the works of man by the word of thy lips, I have kept from the paths of the destroyer. And that path of the destroyer, of course, is none other than Satan. And because of his presence in the world, that's the reason that God's child should be alert. David was. And today the child of God should be very much alert and aware that we're in enemy territory. David was in enemy territory, hiding from Saul. Well, we're in enemy territory. This is the bailiwick of Satan, by the way. In Pergamum, you remember the Lord Jesus said that was where Satan's throne was, and he commended the church. I don't know where you are today, but some of us think Satan's throne is very close to Los Angeles, by the way. But when he speaks here that his lips were undeceitful here in verse 1. It's the perfect picture of our perfect Lord, the Lord Jesus. Remember what Peter said, "...who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And it was said of him, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously." And therefore, he says, "Shall let my sentence come forth from thy presence. He was willing for the Lord to balance things off, the things that are equal. Behold, the things that are equal. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not asking for justice from God. I'm asking for mercy. I feel like I need mercy, and that's what most of us need today. Now, I wish I could dwell longer on the points in this psalm, but we must move down into it. And as we do, will you notice here, and I'll just read now. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tested me. Shall find nothing. I purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. Verse 3, what a picture of our Lord. Verse 4, concerning the works of man, by the word of thy lips, I have kept from the paths of the destroyer. In other words, he didn't fall into Satan's trap. We sometimes do. Verse 5, Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. It's a real plea you see in prayer, a pleading prayer. Show thy marvelous 
loving kindness, O thou who savest by thy right hand those who put their trust in thee, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wing. And remember that expression on eagle's wings. We have a little book on that, that God said to Israel, you see what I've done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What a picture you have where we are placed today in the shadow of thy wings. The Lord Jesus said to Jerusalem, how many times I'd have gathered you as a mother hen gathers a little chick. Where? Under her wings. That's the picture here. Verse 9, from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. They're enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in their steps. They have set their eyes, bowing down to the earth, like a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in his place. This is a very glorious picture that we have here. And he's crying out, you see, to God, I've called upon thee back in verse 6, and thou wilt hear. I'd like to change that a little back there because Dalich translates it like this, As such an one I call upon thee, thou hearest me. Knew that he was heard. And you remember again the Lord Jesus Christ. He identified himself with his own, and he was heard in that he cried out and called to God. We can always be sure, friends, as God's children, he does hear and answer our prayers when we're in trouble. Now, I want to drop on down just a little and conclude this section because we must move along today. And I begin reading at verse 13. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. From men who are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, who have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hidden treasure, they're full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And here is this man hiding in a cave, David, and he calls out to God to deliver him, knows that he's going to deliver him, and knowing that someday he will be in his presence. And yet the enemy seems to be so strong and powerful. And today, you and I, as God's children, look out at a world that is against us. It's like the little boy. He was out in a vacant lot playing, and he was pulling at a big old weed that was growing there. And a man went by and stopped and watched him. And the little fellow would pull on one side and grunt and get on the other side and pull. And finally, with one great supreme effort, the little fellow pulled and the roots of the weed gave way, and the little fellow just fell back with a bump. And he sat there just a little shocked for a moment, and the man looked at him, and he says, Son, says that was a mighty great pull that you gave there. And the little boy, he says, It sure was. He says, Because the whole world is pulling against me. And my friends, that's the position of a child of God today. But we have a resource and a recourse of coming to God. 
And that's the way our Lord did when he was here upon this earth. And David, when he was in real danger. What a psalm to help those that are in trouble today, and especially your enemies that are in the world. And most of us, if we stand for God, we've got enemies, my friends. We've got enemies just like a dog has fleas. They just seem to be part of the Christian's life. Now we come to Psalm 18, and here again is another wonderful psalm, and we wish we could spend a long time here. Now, again, many of the liberal expositors have found in this nothing in the world but David's experience. And they've had said some wonderful things about it. Again, I quote from Peroni, and listen to what he says in this magnificent hymn, The Royal Poet sketches in a few grand outlines the tale of his life. The record of his marvelous deliverances and of the victories which Jehovah had given him. The record, too, of his own heart, the truth of his affection towards God and the integrity of purpose by which it had ever been influenced throughout that singularly checkered life, hunted as he had been by Saul before he came to the throne and harassed perpetually, after he became king by rivals who disputed his authority and endeavored to steal away the hearts of his people, compelled him to flee for his life before his own son, and engaged afterwards in long and fierce wars with foreign nations. One thing had never forsaken him, the love and the presence of Jehovah. By his help he had subdued every enemy. And now in his old age, looking back with devout thankfulness on the past, he sings his great song of praise to the God of his life. Now, that is all true. That is, I think, the local contemporary interpretation of the psalm. It's actually a duplication of Second Samuel 22. And when we came to Second Samuel 22, I touched on it lightly and said that when we got here to the psalms, we'd deal with it a little bit more closely. It has a deeper meaning than that. Some of the utterances that are here are called bold poetic figures, but they're more than figures of speech. These utterances speak of the Son of God, the Anointed One of God, Christ our Savior in His sufferings. And some have labeled this psalm all the way from the jaws of death to Jehovah's throne. Now notice from the jaws of death, And listen to this. We're living in a day when a great deal is said about love, and they think it's foreign to the Old Testament. Notice how this psalm opens. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. When's the last time you told him that you loved him? I think one of the most wonderful things you can do is to tell him that you love him. And I think praise toward God begins because he loves us and he's provided a salvation for us, and he preserves us, then today there is that wonderful providence of God whereby he watches over. And notice what he's called here. First of all, our Lord, he's called my strength. Verse 2, the Lord is my rock. He's my fortress, my deliverer. Now, in all of this, He is the Savior, you see. Then he says, he's my strength. Again, he said that in verse 1. And he says, he's my shield, and he's my horn, and he's my high tower. He's my shield. He protects me. He's my horn, 
He's my strength, my power. You remember David held on to the horns of the altar. My, how we need to hold on to our God and our Savior. He's our horn. And he's our high tower. That's a good place for protection also, and a good place to get a vision and a perspective of life. Many of us need to go to the high tower. And I'm not talking about a magazine here. I'm talking about God is our high tower. Here are wonderful names for him. But you know the thing here that interests me a great deal, and maybe you noticed it, is the personal pronoun my. Oh, Lord, my strength. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer, my God. You know, it's one thing to say God is a great strength. God has great power. It's one thing to talk about the attributes of God and say he's omnipotent. My, that sounds big. But the point is this. Can you say he's my strength? It's one thing to say God is a shepherd. David could have said the Lord is a shepherd, and he is. But it's altogether something else. He's my shepherd. Oh, how different it is to be able to say that. I think I used this illustration the other day. I went out to the airport to meet my wife. She went back to get our little grandson so he wouldn't have to ride in a car all the way across the country. And it was during the holiday season. And well, our little boys and little girls, little folk, some in arms, being carried out. Now, all precious children, I looked at them and smile, and then all of a sudden, here comes one. He's different, friends. You know why he's different? He's my grandson. There were a lot of grandparents there, and my, how sentimental these old grandparents can become. And there they were, you know, greeting their grandchild. It was wonderful. But there was one of them. He was different for me. And you know why? Because of this little possessive pronoun, my. And can you say today, the Lord is my shepherd? He's my high tower, he's my horn, he's my shield, he's my strength, he's my deliverer, he's my rock, he's my fortress. Can you say that today? He's mine. Now he says, I'll call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. And that's what worship is. It comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word, worth, worthy. Worship is that which is extended to the one who's worthy. God is worthy. I'll call upon the Lord. Why? He's worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. And by the way, again, this psalm reaches out and touches the hymn of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Bishop Horn, now I gave another quotation a while ago. Let me give this one from Bishop Horn. He saw in this psalm something else. Let us suppose King Messiah like his progenitor of old seated upon the throne. From thence let us imagine him taking a retrospective view of the sufferings he'd undergone, the battles he had fought, the victories he'd gained. With this before our minds, we shall be able in some measure to conceive the force of the words. With all the yearnings of affection, I love thee, O Jehovah, my strength. Through my union with whom I have finished my work, and I am now exalted to praise thee and those who are redeemed. What a picture. And friends, this just happens to be a song we can join in on. Listen to him now as he goes over that period. And I think this not only recounts the life of David in a limited way, but the life of the Lord Jesus. 
He says here, "...the sorrows of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, the grave, compassed me about, the snares of death were round about me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God." My God, you see. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. And what happened? Well, he responded. And what happened yonder when the Lord Jesus was brought back from the grave? Verse 7, "...then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken, because he was angry." Angry sinful men had done this to him. And we're told that when that stone was rolled away, there was an earthquake. Now we're in a section where the pronoun changes. And instead of it being the first personal pronoun, which was possessive, back up in the first, it is now the third person, and it refers to the Lord. You see here, we read, "...there went up," verse 8, "...a smoke out of his nostrils, fire out of his mouth, devoured coals were kindled. He bowed the heavens also, and came down, and darkness was upon his feet, and he rode." Upon a cherub, and did fly, yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. There was darkness when he was crucified, you know. Who did all this? Verse 13, "...the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice." And that was that voice, you remember, out of heaven, "...this is my beloved Son." And then again, the emphasis still in this department. Verse 16, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Now it started off with my. And then it is all about what God has done. Now it's he and me. Now that may be bad grammar, but that's the way it is here. He and me. He delivered me from my strong enemy. Oh, this personal, vital relationship that you and I need with God today. Oh, to come to grips with him, my friend. He brought me forth also into a large place. Need help today? You need a partner today? I want to recommend one to you. He'll never desert you, never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end. You may desert Vernon McGee, but he never will. <laughs> And that's the reason I depend on him more than I depend on you, my friend. And that's the reason you ought to depend on him instead of depending on me. Isaiah says, put not your confidence in man. Now, we have to drop right down to the end of this marvelous, wonderful psalm here. Will you notice it says here, verse 48, "...he delivereth me from mine enemies, yea, thou liftest me up above those who rise up against me." Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. I think that's Satan. I wish we had time to talk about that. Verse 49, will you listen? Therefore will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises unto thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forevermore. And he extends mercy to us today. How wonderful he is! And the psalm closes on this note of praise to God. Oh, that there might be praise 
in your mouth and in my mouth and your life and my life and your heart, my heart today. Praise to God. And we're going to come to a psalm that says, The Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And friends, if they don't say so, nobody's going to say so in this world today. I don't think our country's going to say so. But the redeemed ought to say so. We need some say-so Christians. Now, friends, we're at the 19th Psalm. And today I'm going to read a translation of this that is made by one in whom I have great confidence. And he is well acquainted with the great scholars, the great Hebrew and German scholars who have made a thorough study of the book of Psalms. And every now and then, I'm sure many of you note who follow the text that I deviate from the authorized version and use this one because it actually brings out a meaning that is there in the original that we do not always get. Now, this is a psalm that can be called a great psalm of creation. It has been divided by many scholars into two parts, creation and the revelation of Jehovah in the law, that is, in his word. Well, I have attempted to divide the psalm into three parts. We have the first part, the cosmos, the creation. Then we have the commandments, and that begins with verse 7 and goes down through verse 11. And then verses 12, 13, and 14, here we have Christ. And my feeling is that he has a special place here. And, of course, the subject is redemption and salvation and the grace of God. So what we really have here is the revelation of God in creation in his commandments, and in Christ, the grace of God. Law and grace and creation, I think, give us a complete revelation of God. That is all that God saw fit to give to man. I do not think he's exhausted all the things he could tell us about himself. Now, in the first part, as we've said, you have God in creation, And then we follow through here with the commandments. It is a psalm of David. It's so called that in the inspired text, and we need to keep that before us. Then we note, actually, there is a division here that is right in the text. The first part of it uses the name for God, which is El, the Mighty One. It's the one used in creation. I think I can remember part of the first verse in Genesis in Hebrew. It's Bereshith, Barah, Elohim. And that's the word. Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. This is his name as the creator. Then beginning in the psalm, when we come to the law of the Lord is perfect, verse 7, actually, We have Jehovah there, and you have here Jehovah Suri Goli, Jehovah my rock, my redeemer. So that when you follow through in a psalm like this, you don't need to have two different authors. This psalm 
No one's attempted to divide it as they've attempted to divide the Pentateuch. And I think if the same common sense and scholarship was used in the Pentateuch, you wouldn't come up with this Eloistic and the Jehovist and Eloist writers of the Pentateuch, because you wouldn't come up with it here. The same writer wrote this, and he used the different names for God. It's well to note that, friends. You know, the Psalms just flood light all the way through the Bible, and I trust bless our hearts and bless our lives. Now, actually, in the first six verses, we have creation. And this has been called a morning psalm again. It's in contrast to the other psalm that we had, the eighth psalm of creation. There we saw the moon and the stars. That's a night psalm. This is a day psalm because it's the sun that's brought before us here. And here we have God's wonderful creation bearing a testimony to him. Will you hear it now in this translation I've referred to? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse maketh known the work of his hands. Day unto day poureth forth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, yet their voice is heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and to the end of the earth their words. In them hath he sent a tent for the sun, and he is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He rejoiceth as a strong man to run the course. His going forth is from the end of the heavens, and his circuit unto the ends of them. There is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Now, this is a marvelous, very wonderful psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, this reveals the fact that, as Paul says in Romans, that the invisible things of him are seen by the things that are made. And they tell out the wisdom of God. They tell out the power of God. And they tell out, I think, something of the plan and purpose of God. And that is the purpose of creation. And actually, the thing that man has come to the conclusion, apparently, from the very beginning is that creation is the primitive witness of God to man as creature. And they just think of God the Father. Yet all the creeds of the church, including the Apostles' Creed, ascribe creation exclusively to God the Father. But when you come to the New Testament, and there's an amplification even of creation, you find out that that is not exactly accurate. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Well, somebody says, isn't that accurate? It is as far as it goes. But the Trinity was involved in the creation of the earth. In fact, that word Elohim is a plural word in the Hebrew, and it speaks of the Trinity. And we are told that the Lord Jesus was the agent of creation, and the Holy Spirit came in and refurbished, revamped, redecorated this. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep after a great catastrophe came in. And we're told 
In John, another beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told again in Colossians 1:16, "...for by him were all things created that are in heaven." that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So that we have the fact here of the creation and the Lord Jesus was the agent. It's the same thing you have in the first chapter of Ephesians in our redemption. God the Father planned it. God the Son paid for it. And God the Holy Spirit protects it. And I think that applies to God's creation today, that God the Father is the one who planned this universe. God the Son, he executed it, and he is the one that redeemed it because the whole creation is groaning, and it's to be redeemed. And then we have God the Holy Spirit moving, brooding over this creation today. And may I add this, that The Son is so prominent here, as you saw. He says, a bridegroom coming out. I was in Jerusalem, and every morning we could see the sun come up as it came up over the side of the Mount of Olives. What a thrill! And you'd see the light breaking on Jerusalem, the walls of the city, the high places first, up where David's grave is, up at Mount Zion. Then we'd see it touching the top of the buildings, then the walls of Jerusalem, then the temple area. What a thrill! And that's a picture of another bridegroom, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom. And he's coming someday in glory to this earth, coming as the Son of Righteousness to this earth. But before he comes, he's going to take his church out into the church. He's the bright and morning star. And a bright morning star always appears before the sunrise. What a picture we have here in creation. Nothing quite like it. And we find here this wonderful, wonderful psalm. We have a picture of creation. Now, there's something else as we move down in the psalm. Let me come to verse 7 here in it, and we'll move down in the psalm from there. And I'm reading again from this translation. The law of Jehovah is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Jehovah is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Jehovah are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of Jehovah is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Jehovah is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Jehovah are truth, They're altogether righteous, more to be desired than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. What a picture that you have here of this. And now notice this next. By them thy servant is warned. In keeping them the reward is great. Now, that brings us to the conclusion of this section here, the second section the commandments. And you notice the thing that it says about them, that they are perfect. Believe me, they're perfect. The reason the law can't save you and me is because 
it's perfect and we are not. We can't measure up to it. And there's nothing wrong with the law. My, the law is quite wonderful. And we're told that, even Paul, who sets forth the grace of God in such a wonderful way. He makes it very clear when you come over to the epistle to the Romans, and I think probably I should turn there and share two or three verses with you. Let me begin reading at verse 12 here. Here's what he says about the law. Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. Nothing wrong with the law. It is spiritual. But it's a ministration of death to us because there's something radically wrong with us. The law is given to show us that we are sinners before God. And so the law here, notice what it says, it's perfect. And the second thing, it's sure. My friend, don't bank on God changing to the new morality or that God is reading some of the new views of psychology or that God is listening to the decisions that some judges are handing down. God's going to punish sin. He says he is. And the testimony of the Lord, sure. Just as sure as you are right where you are right now, the judgment is coming. The commandments reveal that. And then we're told the statutes of the Lord, they're right. Now, somebody says they don't like certain of the commandments. Well, maybe you don't like them. God does. They're right. And what makes them right? I was in a class in sociology years ago. And that was years ago, by the way, when I was in college. And the professor was always saying, and I didn't have the answer then. He's always saying, who's going to determine what's right? How do you know this is right? Well, it's right because God says it's right. The statutes of the Lord, they're right. They're right because he says, and this is his universe. He made it. He makes the rules. Now, maybe you don't like the law of gravitation, but I advise you, not to fool with it. That is, if you go on top of a 10-story building, don't step off because he won't suspend it for you. It operates for all. The statutes of the Lord, they're right and they're pure, friends. I tell you, they're pure. They will do something for you. They'll ennoble you, lift you up. And the fear of the Lord. Now, we are told here in this new Schofield reference Bible that it's reverential trust. I'll buy that, because I have to with these brethren that made it. But I do want to say this. I still believe it's fear. (laughs) And I want to tell you, we'll do well to fear God, my friend. Nothing wrong with that. You know, I love my dad, but I sure was afraid of him. And you know, that kept me in line. I think that's what kept me out of jail, was my dad. I tell you, I knew when I did wrong, there'd be trouble. And there was no way around the fear of the Lord. It's clean. It'll clean you up. Made me a better boy. And even that, I got in trouble all the time. But I had fear of my dad. And that didn't mean I didn't love him. And then we're told the ordinances of the Lord, they're true. You want to know what truth is? Pilate wanted to know. He says, what's truth? Truth is standing right in front of him in the person of Jesus Christ and righteous. God, whatever he does is right. Oh, this is a tremendous section here. And we ought to learn to love the Word of God, all of it. 
There are some folk, several have written me, they think I'm opposed to the Ten Commandments. Why? Ten Commandments are wonderful. I'm not opposed to them. I'm opposed to Vernon McGee. He can't keep them. Now, maybe you can. If you can keep them, then you can ask God to move over. And you'll just sit right by the side of him because you're going to make it on your own. But he says you won't. And I agree with him. And he told me I wouldn't make it on my own. And I agree with him. And I have to come as a sinner to him. Therefore, that brings us to this last, the grace of God in Christ. Who can understand his errors? Who can? I subterfuge a great deal. You use subterfuge. I rationalize. My wife says I rationalize everything. I'm pretty good at that, by the way. I can give you excuses, but God won't accept them. God says that you can't understand your errors. Just take his word for it that you're a sinner. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. That's the problem today. A great many people, they think they're not sinners. And he says, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. What is that great transgression? I'll tell you what that great transgression is. That's to reject Jesus Christ the one that is set before us. Now listen to him. This is a verse you hear many times in prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Who is my strength? Christ. Who's my Redeemer? Christ. And he becomes that through the grace of God. What a wonderful psalm. That brings us now to the 20th psalm. And the 20th psalm is not classed as one of the Messianic psalms, but I've labeled it a Messianic psalm because it's going to talk about him. And it's another wonderful prophecy of the Messiah and his work of redemption. I think it's very closely linked with the two psalms, in fact, the psalms that are going to follow now. And these psalms were used in Israel, I think, in a liturgical way. And they were sung together, all of these through here. And some think they were chanted alternately by the leaders of worship, the Levites, and by the assembled worshipers. That is, it would be antiphonal. And this very wonderful psalm here... Bishop Horn has stated it like this, and this is a great prayer, this psalm. The church prayeth for the prosperity of the King Messiah, going forth to battle as her champion and deliverer for his acceptance by the Father and for the accomplishment of his will. Now, Bishop Horn would have hit the nail right on the head if instead of saying the church, he'd have said Israel or the remnant of Israel because this is a psalm that really has to do with Israel. Notice how it begins, and it's a psalm that tells out the grace of God, too. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. That's when we want him to hear us, isn't it? And the name of the God of Jacob defend thee. And how did old Jacob get in? By the grace of God. And God never was ashamed to be called a God of Jacob. I'd have been ashamed of him. Maybe you would. God was not. 
But God saved him by grace, and already the name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary. What sanctuary? Your church? No. The sanctuary is yonder in Jerusalem, friends. That's where it was. And strengthen thee out of Zion. Now, maybe you aren't thinking of Zion, Illinois, and maybe Zion up in Utah. But that just is not the Zion that's mentioned here. And it's not your church or my church or anybody else's. Zion is Zion. I don't think anything could be clearer. You've got to be a theologian to miss this. It's so clear here. And how wonderful it is. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. This is wonderful. In the day of trouble that Israel will go through in the future, the church today and the individual Christians, Selah. We said that means stop, look, and listen. There's something for you to meditate on, something to think about in these days when there's so much of trouble. And it has a meaning, therefore, for us today, you see, a very wonderful meaning. And then as we move on down in this little psalm here, he says, "...grant thee according to thine own heart, and fulfill all thy counsels." How wonderful it is here. "...we will rejoice in thy salvation. In the name of our God we'll set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions." Now, he's going to hear the prayer of the Lord Jesus. Remember, he said that when he was here, that he always hears his prayer, always hears it. And he's the only one that he hears and answers, I think, all of them. And here we have this wonderful psalm, and here at the end, verse 9, Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. And the king is for Israel. He's our Savior today, and we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior today. And this is a Hosanna, Jehovah, save, save, Lord, save Jehovah, Hosanna. This is a great Hosanna psalm. May God make it real to our hearts and give us a song today in our hearts.